couple of scriptures just to kind of lay a, a foundation for what I'm going to talk about, although we've already been doing what I'm going to talk about. So um, one is Mark 7 and verse 6. Both are Jesus speaking, so it's in red. Very important. Uh, Jesus was uh, out to make friends, as always, when he said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Um, as it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They, it's an incredible verse, uh, line, they worship me in vain. Right person, but still a waste of time. It's a fascinating phrase. You'd think if we just stick the name of Jesus into anything, it makes it all right. <laughs> Musicians get saved and then they start playing Christian music. And it's no different whatsoever. Um, they worship me in vain and he explains their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And then the second one is John 4, and Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And um, we'll just do this little bit. John 4, 21, if you want to read it yourself in the week. Uh, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshiper. God's looking for a kind of worshiper. They're the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Um, about 30 years ago, I was in the northern area of South Africa on a, a game reserve. The game reserve was run by a prophetess. She was a wild woman. She had uh, raised the dead many times over, which led to lots of stories around the braai. Anybody here? Not barbecue. Where's the South Africans in the room? Around a braai. And uh, she prophesied to government. She'd seen miracles, literally the ground shaking in their prayer meetings. Uh, at one time, they came to necklace her, which is to, they put a, a car tire over your head, douse you in petrol and set you aflame. It's called necklacing. And they came with the tires, but with no fuel. She said, oh, don't worry, I'll buy the fuel for you. And she reached out and grabbed the hand of the man that was about to necklace her. And he leapt back as she touched him and all burns appeared up his arm and they ran off. Uh, it's remarkable. It was like meeting Elijah. Uh, Elijah's younger, slightly more powerful sister. You know, one of them. And so we've been staying on this game reserve that she owned. She had about 500 people on her workforce, many of whom had been witch doctors. And she would essentially just do a classic Elijah-like confrontation. Okay, your God versus my God. Let's get it together. And, and literally the power of God would be seen. People would be healed, miracles. Arms would pop out where there were no arms and stuff like that. Remarkable woman. And so we were staying there for about 10 days. We'd helped set up this little clinic, although in 
all honesty, the clinic kind of shut down because the doctors got saved and started seeing more people healed through prayer than through the medicine. But anyway, we tried. Um, we were staying there and we were due to be at an early morning prayer meeting. And uh, so this one particular morning we got up and uh, we, we got into our pickup truck and headed to a kind of six in the morning prayer meeting. And you could hear the sound of about five, 500 uh, Africans singing in proper African praise. Come on, somebody. Uh, their feet were stamping. The red dust was bursting up from under their feet. They were in this huge circle as the dawning African sun rose over the horizon. And we were kind of the, the missionaries turning up, and we kind of stood in a, in a little row uh, uh, observing the meeting, knowing that at some point Rita would turn to us and say, you know, would you come and say a few words each sort of thing? And, and so at the appropriate moment after a time of praise, Rita kind of started down the line, and a, a few of the team got to say stuff. And then it came to my turn. I'd been thinking, what, what shall I say? I mean, you know, you've got Catherine Coleman and, and Smith Wigglesworth all rolled into one little blonde woman stood in front of me, and she wants me to say a few words from my quiet time that morning. Um, uh, but she turned to me in that moment, and instead, she knew what I did, because I, uh, for a living, I was a, a worship leader. And um, uh, that had been my background. In fact, as the years rolled on, I became a worship leader signed to a record label. And all this is relevant why I tell you this. A little bit of an aside. I remember sitting in Home Farm. Any of you know Home Farm, the pub? Sitting there with, with record executives as they sat and told me how they were going to turn me into the Christian, well, he is Christian, Cliff Richard. <laughs> yes, my heart fell. Just like it was as funny as it sounded. And, uh, but anyway, I got signed to a couple of record labels along the way, and today Sony own quite a lot of my music and people. Now, all of that's relevant. Dial right back. Here I am in the middle of the African bush, 500 people. This woman who had raised the dead, sees miracles, prophesied to governments. And she turned and she pointed to me amongst the little group of missionaries, and she said, Jared, come and lead us in worship. Well, my heart sank. I wanted to go, where's the keyboard? Uh, was the OHP in those days. Come on, Lucy, where are you? Remember the OHP? Those are the proper days of worship when you sat at the front with a big box with 250 slides in it and you had to just leaf real quick. Not like semi there, just search. Just No, you had to go through the files and then you put up these, these really badly written OHP slides written by, I don't, don't know who the pastor was in those days, but written by the pastor in those days. Um, I looked around for all the... What she meant was... You told me you're a worship leader and you lead hundreds of people every day in worship. So come and lead worship. And I was looking for my keyboard, my microphone. There was no rows of seats. We were outdoors under the dawning African sun. It was all noise and praise and glory. I didn't have my set list of little songs. And it's as though my world in that instant caved in. I hid behind the person next to me, kind of fumbled an excuse, and thankfully she could see what was going on. She moved on to the next person. But where she didn't press her point, God did. I realized in that impotent moment in the African bush that what I had was not Christianity. I had culture. And the thing that I was, in fact, at that time employed to do full time, actually, if you put it in the same environment as Jesus, have you noticed Jesus never had Graham Kendrick in the background while he was doing a healing service? 
He didn't even have the chord of F being played in the background. But still miracles, glories, signs and wonders, God moving, people being amazed, people being overwhelmed, happened without all the paraphernalia of a modern Western culture. And then that moment in 1991, my whole world crumbled as I realized I had culture, but I did not have God. I was, I was pleased that things in my life, my destiny seemed to be progressing. And then I realized maybe I was progressing in something that wasn't God at all. It was a culture of what worship had become. You worship me in vain. It's nothing but human tradition. Hypocrites, Jesus said, which literally means actors. Here's the dangerous thing. God is looking for a kind of worshiper. He's not looking for worship leaders. Isn't that good? He's looking for worshipers. People who worship him, not in a geographical location or with the right songs, but worship him with their hearts because he said, uh, you worship me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. Who knows? You can sit through a service and go and sing the songs and you can leave as empty as when you arrived and not have met the living God. Who knows? The stage can be full of Christian sounding things, but you on row six, seat number three, if only we had seat numbers, You can sit there and go, this is meaningless to me. Where is God in this room? Because we all do it, every one of us. We end up in a world that is culture, not Christianity. And not every, it's not all wrong. God has a wonderful way of weaving through all kinds of cultures, good, bad, and ugly. He's extremely clever at that. But I don't know about you, more than anything, I would love to make, God at home in our culture. I don't want to sing about God. I want to know God. I want those experiences like 2 Chronicles 5 and Acts 2 when God turns up and you know God is in the room. Not organized by a stage, not put together by some uh, clever music or a good preacher, but, but you and I both know God's in the room. He wants heart. And then the other thing about worship is that it's got to be in the correct dimension. Everybody say dimension. (laughs) That we worship in spirit. There's something of God in the room that's more than songs or sermons. God's in the room. I've been reading uh, a little book that kind of takes me back to some of my experiences over the last 30 years. Because that day in the African bush, I knew I wanted to find the God of all glory instead of the God of the British. I didn't want to find the God of a certain worship culture that had become what it is. I wanted to go through that and beyond it. I didn't want to discredit it, but I certainly didn't want it to get in my way. I want to know the real God, the God who heals, the God who transforms. And uh, so I've been reading a little little book about worship. So today I'm kind of talking about worship and prayer. Is that okay? And We'll pray a little bit more before we finish, I'm sure. Um, but I'm reading a book by Bob Sorge at the moment, and uh, it's all about worship and kind of where we're at historically and what might God want to do next. And please note, by the import and the strength of the two scriptures I've just read, because you might think worship, yeah, we're talking about that hour and a half again on a Sunday morning when I've got so many other hours in my week that need attention. But according to Jesus, whether it's your personal time with him alone or your personal time with him as you go through your day, 
all the times that we're gathered in prayer or worship together, whether it's a Wednesday or a Sunday, these are vitally important. They can be the difference between a, a hypocritical life and a life full of the wonder of God. And um, Bob Sorge in this book kind of charts through a little potted history of what worship has become kind of since the 60s. Uh, in the 60s, many churches began to step out of what you might consider to be like the Anglican and Catholic traditions, and some new things began to arise. And in the 60s, what he terms as, and he says, and it's, it's an in inadequate term, but let's use it for a minute, it, there was almost like a Baptist version of worship, evangelical, should we say, not spirit-filled, but definitely believing in Jesus, the cross, salvation, and all that God has done. And what worship was, let's see if we've got anybody that can remember this, in the 60s, you you would often have a piano player on one side of the stage and an organist on the other. Oh, them were the days. I'm getting all the, all the right nods from the right people. And essentially, kind of in the 60s, you had a kind of a, a four-hymn type service. And near the end of the 60s, it got a little bit radical because you might have three hymns and a chorus. You know, that's getting a little bit wild. But then, listen to this. This is where it's important to us right now. In the 70s, something began to stir in the earth called the Jesus movement, the Jesus people. And if you know your spirit-filled history, you'll know that there was a surge of lots of hippies and druggies and kaftan-wearing people in the West getting saved. When we were in Gibraltar, most of the church elders were kaftan-wearing ex-druggies. One, one used to run a drug shop, and they became the elders of the church. We had lots of high praise in that church. Ha <laughs> corny, but it woke you up, didn't it? In the 70s, there was this surge of the Holy Spirit. People just radically getting saved by the presence of God, not by organized evangelism. There, there were places all over the world um, where people were literally rehabbing as the presence of God hit them and they do cold turkey with Jesus and come out gloriously born again. And a lot of them became pastors. It was a revival. But here's what was happening in the worship, that those kind of four songs before the sermon started to slowly turn into, here's a dynamic, catch this, something began to take over from the stage that was landing on the people. People were rising up in worship and there began to be waves of singing in the spirit and freely just worshiping God. Listen to this, as the spirit hit the church, you needed less stage because something was happening in the body. And so there would be times when the musicians just, they, they had to kind of sit back realizing there's something happening in the church and we need to kind of sit back a little and, and let God do what he's doing. And they'd be singing in tongues for 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour sometimes, just waves of it. Some of you have been in conferences when you've known just singing in tongues like waves for an hour at a time, sometimes even longer, as the glory of God rested on the people of God. Now, then came the 80s, the best decade ever. <laughs> Not convinced, all right then. In the 80s, the musicians decided, we're going to kind of join in with you. And there was something of waves of the Spirit stirring up in congregations. And musicians began to learn how to undergird that with music. And sometimes even it would become quite militant. And the drums would start. And we'd all end up in this glorious intercession. But it was spontaneous and unscripted. And something was still stirring in the hearts. Leftovers almost of the Jesus movement. As the Holy Spirit was still stirring in congregations. And there was glorious senses of the move of the Holy Spirit. Slowly... 
the musicality became better and better. We hit the 90s, Ron Canoli, lift him up. Integrity Hosanna, Vineyard, all the musicality began to get better and better and stronger and stronger. Catch this, and slowly the stage took back over from the people. And you go through the 90s and the music's getting stronger and, and now we're better quality musicians and all really quite fancy equipment gets cheaper and we move slowly from OHPs to projectors. Ooh, we're so modern as kids, right? And slowly we ended up in, over the next two decades, the music slowly took over again from a move of the spirit in the people. And what you ended up with, and this is Bob Sorge's assessment of it, right? This guy is a worship specialist. I mean, I was reading his stuff 30 years ago, which was the bog standard stuff to read if you're growing in worship ministry. He said, strangely, this is what happened. Catch this. We actually went back to the 60s, but with better songs. Well, that's debatable sometimes, but we went back to the 60s. In other words, we got back to, we just sing four songs before the sermon comes on. And that is what worship has become slowly in the last one or two decades. And where there is a lessening of the move of the Holy Spirit in the people, the stage slowly takes over. But listen, do you know that in every revival, every true global, world-shaking revival that's been, that there's been, it has come not from the stage, but from God falling on people. It's almost like the least exciting times in church history has been when the stage takes over. Because let's be honest, whatever we do, however clever we are, this can't make up for God. Anybody on my planet? I mean, if your heart is really a Christian, then you're longing for the real thing. You read the book of Acts and you go, I don't want to faff about at culture. I want God. And I want a Monday morning God that performs miracles. Not just what's the best thing that we can put together, a set list and the best three-point sermon we can muster. No, if your heart's like mine, I want to meet God and know God and hug God and carry God and see signs and wonders and miracles. And listen, culture won't get us there. Somehow, as we heard this morning, God, we want to enter your realm. This realm is not enough. Just humanizing this thing that we do when we get together is not enough. Now listen, all the prophetic people in the room find this easier. And probably about a fifth of you are quite prophetic. All the spirit-filled people find it easier to let go of agenda and just let God be God. But I know there's a percentage in this room, and it's not wrong, that would sit there going, I honestly don't know what to do when there's no agenda or program, or we're not flitting from one thing to the other. Here's what I'd say. Push through to find God. Linger like they did in the book of Acts until we get so spirit-filled. Because here's what I think. Some of us may have fallen in love with a culture and not with God himself. Anybody want to find God? Where have we been at the last couple of decades? Back in the 60s, actually. Four songs in a, four songs in a row and then put the, put, the, put the speaker on. We even call it a set list. Oh, set lister of the devil. What would happen if we really said, God, come and have your way among us? I mean, come on, really? So, so often we say to God, God, we welcome you. You're free to do whatever you want. But this is what we're actually doing. I'm going to use you, Sam. Just Sam, in it. 
we do this. Just stay there a second. This is what we're doing to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Do whatever you want to do. Just stay there, though. <laughs> it's nice to have you in the room, but I've got all these things we plan to do. And Sister Bucket's mouse planned her prophecy, and this, well, this one's planned that. We're gonna, we welcome you. You're free to do whatever you want to do, but you're going to have to get us in a half Nelson to do it. Come on, anybody? Maybe we should do this. Work with me, Sam. Come on. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Do what you want to do. <laughs> do you see the subtle difference? If, we, if, if our services are not supernatural, this is not Christianity. If you can sit down ready for the word, ready for communion, this is not the Christianity that I know, where it says the people of the Spirit are like the wind. You can't tell where they're coming from. You can't tell where they're going. Anybody want to enter the realms of God? It requires us to put away culture and realize, ah, what I had, it, maybe it's a, it's a throwback from something that God did once. But when we make it an entire culture that we can't live without, we miss the very glory of God. Well, through the 90s, this was my kind of pursuit. I was, I was at this crossroads. Am I going to go deeper and deeper into, into music and worship? Or because of that day in the African bush, am I going to head off to find the God of glory? Because right now, all I can see is this woman ain't got a worship team. She hasn't got a projector. She hasn't even got a building. She's out in the open air with 500 people and she's seeing miracles, signs and wonders. She's doing everything that Jesus did and she's got none of the paraphernalia that we've got. And as far as I can see, we're relying on the paraphernalia. It has become our God. I know that's a strong way to put it, but suck it up. It has become our God because some can't imagine church being any different. But listen, how's about a reset in worship? How's about, you, you know, that the, the scariest button on your phone is reset default settings, isn't it? Got all those little things that you've done, the way you like your screen, your wallpaper, the little pictures next to your number, they're all going to disappear the moment you press that and you've just got used to your phone. Don't you hate changing phones, anybody? I can't stand, I've got to learn a whole new thing, good heavens. What if God in this time, seeing as so many prophets around the world saying there is a divine reset going on, I'm turning it off and on again, and we're going back to default setting. What's default setting? Acts chapter 2. Peter didn't stand up and says, right, we're going to have a testimony. Then I'd like you to sing a song. Where's the projector? Get it right. Here's my PowerPoint. Are the seats in nice rows? Is the coffee okay? No, he stood up in a blazing sense of the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. You know, most of us are squeezing to try and get people saved. Listen, Peter, for every word he uttered in that short sermon in Acts chapter 2, six people gave their lives to Christ. For every word he uttered. We don't know how. They didn't tell us whether he gave them a journey into life and made them put their hand in the air or walk forward into a side room, which is always a bit creepy, I think. But anyway, maybe, maybe the way they got to 3,000 was just that for every word he uttered, six people would collapse to their knees in tears saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. We don't know. And I kind of like the fact that we don't know, because if not, we'd make a culture of that. Whereas the only culture, the only vision really is Jesus. 
So I was bundled up with all this in the early 90s, and I was now a worship leader. It's what I did all day. I led people in worship every single day. I felt like a divine jukebox. <laughs> Stick your money in, and I'll play you three fast songs and a slow one. Do you know what I mean? It's what I did all day. It drove me nuts in the end. Because it's so easy for all of us, isn't it, to fall into form, especially the more years you go on, the harder it gets. It's all the form and all the culture and all the paraphernalia and none of the romance and the joy and the childlikeness of it all. And so we were in a church of about 80 or 100 people. And I went to uh, my leader at the time who happened to have been with me there in the African bush. So it's kind of easy to have the conversation. And I said, look, I know, I know I'm here to lead worship, but we're just churning out songs, but it doesn't feel like God anymore. I don't mean that God won't work through anything, but could there be a better way? And it was almost like, can you catch this? It was almost like I felt my very ministry was perhaps, in the moments we were together publicly, smothering something that God wanted to come from his body. Every, you know, there I was, 21 years old, still working out God and everything. But 45 minutes of every, of every service was handed over to me to lead a row of songs. Sometimes I sat there thinking, poor people, they all have to do what I'm doing. I wonder what would happen if we just put all the stuff aside and said, okay, church, we're spirit-filled, we've got God, let's meet him. What might happen if we actually behaved like the early church, maybe a realm of authority and glory would be released in the church like the early church saw. I got so frustrated. Listen, frustration is good. It can come from heaven. You just got to know how to deal with it, right? In the end, I remember, like it was yesterday, standing up for the first time and I preached. This was my title, The Misuse of the Music Ministry. How, now, take into context everything I just said before. I, I was a signed musician for a record label. And I was going, but my own ministry can take over what God wants to do in his church. I wonder what would happen if we were just released to be the body. Well, just like some of you today, they hated that sermon. Because I was revealing that they were in love with a culture and not with Jesus. took away music and for about three months not a musical note was played do you know what it was like it was horrible <laughs> people complained they begged me on their knees please play us one little f chord so that we could feel spiritual because we'd become spiritual if there's certain things in the room to make us feel that way that is why your life is so impotent on a monday morning because we are training psychologically that spirituality equals projector, pastor, bit of music. Instead of realizing God's so real, you can have the glory of God turn up in an office. And people begin to shake under the power of God. But we are psychologically training ourselves that God appears in certain moments with certain paraphernalia. Their lips are near me, but their hearts are far from me. It's all in vain. Well, for three months, it was. It was horrible. Some people left the church. They came back eventually. And we learned what would it have been like to be a worshiper in the book of Acts, really? Without whatever 
you know, the particular culture it is that each of us enjoys. It might be the four songs in a row or, or you know, high church service. What would it have really been like for the book of Acts to be together as the body of Christ seeing God move? And we workshopped and we trained and we taught people. What, what's it like when we turn up to a prayer meeting together and anybody ever feel like me? You just don't feel like being there? Is that just me? And, and I'm the pastor and I don't feel like being there. So how do you overcome your flesh and push through into the realms of the spirit as we heard this morning? God, we want to be in your realm. Well, listen, for three months it was hard work because that's what happens when we're changing our eyesight and our cultural perspectives. It's hard. Nobody, Jesus said, drinking new wine says they prefer it. They prefer the older. Literally, his words are more comfortable, easier wine. And it was tough. But listen to what happened. A couple of months into us going, maybe there's another way. It was like the glory of God began to break out in services. Not because of a worship leader or a pastor, but because something was breaking out in people. Worshippers were rising to a new realm in God. I remember the glory of God being so thick. People were saved and all we'd done is sing in tongues for an hour. I remember seeing rows of seven, eight, nine-year-olds weeping, crying in tongues for their unsaved friends for half an hour at a time. I remember one service where a minister's wife was stuck in the foyer of the church on her knees, worshiping holy, holy, holy. She says, the holiness of God is too strong in the auditorium. I can't go in. I remember people falling on their knees in the car park, being stuck in the car park. It's as if the glory of God had descended, not on the anointing of one servant of God, but on something in the church. Something broke through. And you know what? Then we started to add bits of music back to what we did. Oh, it was electric. Because it become what it is. Not the main thing on our plate, but a spice on the meal. Music is just supposed to be a spice. It's we who carry the glory. It's you that have rivers of living water flowing out of you. Meetings become powerful, not because of a great preacher. But when the church comes together, each of you carries a stream in you. And when that gets released because you touch new realms in God, the stream becomes a river and a murmuration of the people of God in prayer, a murmuration of evangelism, a murmuration of the purposes of God begin to stretch out across the region, not because of one man or one musician or one band or certain cultural paraphernalia, but because you and I, we, the body, touch the realms of the spirit where he says, those are the kind of worshipers. I'm looking for people that know how to worship me in spirit. Not just in culture. What would happen if we push through and say, God, we want to enter your realm. Um, don't worry, I'm not about to announce that we're not playing music anymore. <laughs> There's a mixed response there, I think. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Man. But what I am announcing is, come on, let's go beyond this culture. If you've been around a, a long time, you've heard me tell all these stories before. But it's amazing how quickly. Do you know what the meetings are like in the week when I'm talking to staff? I sit sometimes looking at them as we analyze what's been happening lately, you know, at any different point. And I'll often say stuff like, we're just falling into ritual and pattern, guys. I'm bored. God's bored. You're bored. Come on. 
Somebody somewhere be brave. Somebody break rank and find God. Somebody go into another realm. Somebody seek him. Somebody let, let the spirit rise again. Like in the 70s and 80s, let the spirit rise among the people. Do you know the Welsh revival had virtually no preaching? We think of revival as a famous preacher. Evan Roberts, most of the time, sat on the front row, just quietly. And he only stood up and shared what God told him to share. It was a prayer revival that shook the world as the Spirit of God moved across people. I've had enough of the stage. We want God. We want God among us. Amen? God stirring. I don't know about you. Let's break out the 60s. As cool as they might have been, for anybody here that remembers them. Although they do say, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there, don't they? They were quite wild, apparently. <laughs> uh, God, come and move among us. God, we want you. So that, that oil, there he is, just falling on hearts right now. The oil of God. God, we do want to move past church cultures. Would you breathe across upon us right now with your prayers? God, where we have fallen in love with culture and made cultures and patterns our God instead of you, the shocking, wonder-filled person of you. God, would you forgive us? Would you wash us? Forgive us for considering preference to be holy. God, come and breathe. Come and breathe over our lives in Jesus' name.